Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody, welcome to our good news segment. You've heard us talk a lot about our technology. You've heard us talk a lot about what we're doing. But I got to tell you, there is one industry that when you talk about technology, even if you can remember back in the day when dot, 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 you had to book your flight, you had to book your hotel, everything was manual, you probably had some piece of paper in front of you. And you know, to be honest with you, that wasn't very long ago. But the travel industry changed dramatically, and for the better. What though, has technology done, especially with Brianna Frank joining me here today, director IBM Cloud, what can we look forward to to see how technology is changing and how cloud-based services, especially by IBM, are really meeting the needs of so many people. Brianna, it's great to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So um, uh, there are a lot of industries that technology has hit and, hit and and changed for the better, but a little bit slower, I believe, than the travel industry. When the travel industry went digital, so much has changed, but yet so many people have tried to keep up. You know, today we're talking about technology that you're going to mention and really give us a little insight to that is making this not just easier for companies, but making it super smart. Tell us about the role that you've seen technology play in travel. Yeah, that's a great question. I like how you opened, you know, about the history. Yeah. It's so easy for us to forget, <laughs> you know, how people travel used to be. And, you know, in, for years now, we've been kind of leveraging technology to find the best price, to find the perfect, you know, flight, to meet our needs, the perfect hotel room. But now with the pandemic, I think more than ever, we're seeing, uh, you know, a surge of travel. Um, you know, a lot of folks had their, you know, plans delayed or, or postponed. And now, you know, everyone's ready to get out there and start to travel again. But, you know, the airlines are ha- and the and travel industry as a whole are having to keep us safe. So there's this real, a lot of pressure to really use technology and create digital experiences. So where we can have very frictionless, contactless, you know, uh, check-ins and where we can order drinks and food from our seat in the plane instead of having to wait for a flight attendant to come around. Those are some of the things that we're seeing is really critical right now. One, to keep us safe, but also, you know, because the demands of our us as travelers have really changed. And now we're, we're not very patient. So we want to, you know, we want on-demand instantaneous service. And I think this is really part of our conversation today is to really say how the gap has been closed between, uh, let's just call it end user demand and um, supply demand to provide. And there are so many connecting parts, but I believe that the end user demand is getting greater and greater and greater across the board. 
Um, and, you know, there are some things that companies done, have done to change. Let's talk about what companies see, what the benefits are to what we're talking about. But also the, the pandemic has really opened up opportunities for companies to adjust and change. What have you found? Yeah, no, I, I think the pandemic has definitely offered, um, you know, a, a chance to change and pivot. And, you know, c- consumers are more willing than ever to leverage, you know, kiosks and, you know, remote check-ins, and, um, which is wonderful. Um, and and it's, it's actually allowed the consumer to have a faster, you know, more enjoyable experience, but also it's alleviated some of the surge on the airlines and the travel industry as they, you know, are staffing up with agents. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting how, you know, things like virtual assistants where, you know, you're using artificial intelligence to kind of predict the kinds of questions a user might have or, you know, to help problem solve. Um, that's actually helped the airlines and the travel industry because you know, they may not have as many agents um, at the moment to, to fill all the demand, but it also helps the user because they're able to get an answer faster. And if they do have to talk to an agent, they can get to one faster. So we're seeing, you know, benefits on both sides, um, especially with uh, AI in the terms of, you know, really kind of predicting a problem before it happens. So maybe you see a surge of usage uh, or, you know, individuals flying to a specific city, you know, the, the travel industry can prepare for that and have, you know, additional, you know, rental cars on hand as mm-hmm. an example. By using artificial intelligence, they're able to get ahead of some of these problems. Yeah, and I love that. What I like to think about, especially in the industry that I'm in and, and really building this network is, you know, we calling it the, you know, connecting the dots, you know, for a higher level of service. And that's what I think we're talking about when we're talking about this level of cloud service. Can you let folks know how they can find out about the IBM cloud? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, to kind of find out more about how the IBM cloud is transforming the travel industry and other industries, you, know, you can go to ibm.com forward slash cloud mm-hmm. um, to get more information. Uh, okay, let's take a look at this because sometimes we get so, how should I say it? Um, we're so used to on demand, push a button. You know, I was on my phone over the weekend and I needed to get something and I'm like, dot, dot, dot. And if I had to, if I had to go to three screens, that was going to be like way too many. Right. (laughs) So let's talk about, you know, when we think about travel, what are some of the critical things that we should know about that airlines are doing to make sure that things are being shifted around so people get the demand they want. Uh, For example, I know that the demand is high because for the first time with the airline that I fly, um, I had to wait 60 60 minutes to get a call and, and then finally you could hit a button and they'll call you back. So let's talk about the role of technology in industries like travel, but also from your perspective, you know, what's a possibility here? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I actually was booking my own family vacation um, over the weekend. (laughs) I think that really struck me is that when I was looking at reviews for hotels and and things of that nature, Mm -hmm. I found that people tended to give a negative review if they had to wait a long time. So maybe even 20 minutes to check in. I found that was really interesting because after they came home from their trip, they had a wonderful trip, but that was the thing that stuck out in their mind is that they had to wait in line. So I think that there's just a lower tolerance for waiting 
waiting in line. And, um, you know, especially now that we're in a pandemic, you know, no one wants to really kind of, uh, you know, be in a big crowd. They don't want, they want to be able to reduce the, um, the, the, face-to-face contact, but also we're just impatient as travelers. And so we don't want to have to wait. And so I think there's this expectation that operationally that we have things really under control and that we're, um, we're handling a lot of that check-in process um, mm-hmm. electronically and digitally. So I think that's a big, the big trend that I'm seeing in terms of just our, you know, tolerance for having to wait is so low. So whether it's you're checking in or as you mentioned, you know, waiting online for an answer, you know, we, one of the pandemic, is, is creating this surge that we're going to have to, uh, there are a lot more people traveling, yeah. but two, we're impatient. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, I, I think we're even more impatient than we were before the pandemic. And, you know, rightly so. I, I think people are wanting to know that I'm going to be able to shift my life. I'm going to be able to have a great time. I'm going to be able to get out there. Um, you know, let me just ask you this, because I've done a number of interviews with folks from IBM, IBM Cloud, and there are so many areas that y'all are into, uh, and and I wanted to talk to you about the future. I'm, can you, without holding you to, yes, this is going to happen, I want... I want your vision of where the future of technology and travel could go. So, I mean, I think that what my job and our, you know, IBM's job is to really facilitate innovation. And mm-hmm. so what we have to do is provide a platform. We have to provide the right tools and the right expertise to allow our clients to to pivot, to innovate. And so, you know, whatever direction the the world sort of demands, whether it's, you know, increasingly frictionless experiences, maybe it's more security, you know, and I think that that's also a big, a big concern as people are taking out their credit cards, they're using their passports again, they want to keep their data safe, they want to keep their, um, their information very secure and compliant. So those are the areas that I think that um, are most critical right now in terms of, you know, technology is really having that built-in security, but also providing the right tools and expertise so that our clients can just move faster and pivot faster. Because really what it's about is kind of listening to your clients and figuring out what is the next feature function that we need to deliver to build that amazing experience. So I think, you know, as you know, I mean, cloud, we have to make sure that we're providing that platform so that our clients can go in whatever direction they need to deliver that amazing experience. Mm-hmm. You know, th- you know, first of all, let me thank you for coming out here and talking about this and really giving us up some information. Um, I know that people that are traveling or waiting to put their plans together, they just really want to know, I don't want to have to connect all the dots. I want, I want some form of intelligence that's going to help me with this. Um, you know, how do people find out more about what we're talking about today? And also, how do they find out more about the direction that IBM and IBM Cloud is going? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at IBM.com slash, you know, cloud is a great place to start. You can kind of learn about all the different technologies and services that we provide to allow our clients to move faster so that they can build experiences that, you know, allow the travel industry to move as, as smoothly as it needs to move to to meet all of this new client demand. Yeah. And and that's really the key. I mean, some of the studies and surveys say that people are ready now with the vaccination. They're ready to fly. They're ready to get out there and go places. And, you know, 
they're ready to go. Yeah, they're ready to go. And to your point, I think that the anticipation and the expectation yeah. is high because many people have had to delay their travel. They want a flawless, you know, amazing trip because they've had to, you know, mm-hmm. wait a long time for this trip. So the there's a lot of pressure to make sure that we can pull off these amazing experiences. I I couldn't have said it better. There is a lot of pressure. And thank you for stepping up and helping out with this, Brianna. Thank you. Last question. What's your personal message? What do you want to leave us with today? Yeah, I think that, you know, the most important thing is when you're talking about technology is keeping your data secure. And, you know, IBM Cloud and IBM believes that your data is your data. And so we want to make sure that that's, that's safe and secure. We don't profit off of, you know, our clients' data. I love it. Brianna, thank you so much. Take care. Everybody, get ready to fly. (laughs) Get ready to fly. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Get empowered. Transformation Talk Radio. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to our good news segment. I got to tell you, I want to introduce you to somebody you may or may not know, Jackie Abram. Jackie is the author of Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and What Kept Her Job. We're going to be talking with Jackie about this book, but it's a much bigger conversation. It's the conversation we started weeks ago. It's the conversation that started with what do you mean women don't deserve equal pay? And who do you think is at the bottom of that list. And what do you mean we're going to keep this woman of color out of the Olympics? Why? Yeah, all of that and much more. But what don't we know? What don't we know? And how prevalent is it? Hush money is a compelling and beyond cautionary tale that is familiar, all too familiar to black people across the globe. But here's what happens, right? Here's what we know. Our black sisters are speaking up now. And they're speaking up. And what they're saying is, hello, we got to stop this. Jackie, it's so great to have you. Welcome to the show. I'm a little fired up because we've been covering this for a long time. And by the way, I've been covering this most of my life because of my family and my background. And I want to tell you uh, this. The timeliness of this? How did you plan this? Welcome. Well, thank you. I am so glad to be here. And I'll tell you, the timing of it um, was based on several factors, Dr. Pat. Um, First of all, um, if you know a little bit about me um, and my daughters who helped me co-author this book, we ourselves have been uh, victims of racial discrimination. Um, my career, which spanned probably um, very close to two decades uh, in higher education, was derailed multiple times over that sequence. And so um, if you can just imagine for a minute what it's like to be someone working in corporate America, you are not only good at what you do, you enjoy it, and you're building this career that you can have the American dream with. Um, This career is going to allow you to own a house. It's going to allow you to buy a car. It's going to allow you to provide for your family and even have money to pay for your bills. And after uh, a few years of working in this career that's going in the right direction, 
all of the sudden the rug is pulled from under you and you now find yourself at risk of losing this job for no other reason than because you are black and someone in the organization decided that you did not deserve to be in that position. And so your career is derailed. You are heartbroken. You are uh, traumatized, but you pick up the pieces and you go and search for another company, hoping that things will be different. You start all over. You build a, a career. You build a reputation for yourself. You learn what you need to learn, and you're good at it. And now you think you can breathe. And so you're, you feel like you're on the right track. And then once again, someone decides that because you are black, you do not deserve that position, and you become a target. And that rug is pulled from underneath you. So it's not a, a one-time thing that happens to our black and brown people, Dr. Uh -huh. Pat. It happens repeatedly. Um, there is no safe place for us. To, to build careers. Um, and so the, the mass majority of people are, are flocking to this book, uh, Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job, because it gives people of color a hope that we have not had before. It gives us a way knowing that this is something we're going to continue to battle and deal with but if this one woman was able to not only prove what was happening to her, but actually fight it, survive the battle, win the war, and keep her job, I want to know what she did because I'm going to do the exact same thing. And that's why this book is, is just getting such uh, amazing attention worldwide right now. It's getting attention and it's written in such a beautiful way that we can follow along. And I have to tell you this, as I was reading this book, Jackie, one of the things I was really struck by is how I felt exactly by your words in the shoes, in the feet on the ground. Yes. Yeah. In the twisting arc of Ebony's story. You, you cannot help put yourself in this place. And I don't care what color you are. If you read this book, you're going to get a taste of something that you're probably not familiar with. You know, you, you, you bring up a, a very valid point. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, Dr. Pat, hush money is really appealing to, I'll tell you, three different types of readers right now. Um, for the person of color, who has been dealing with racial discrimination or racism. Um, if you look at the reviews on Amazon, the, the, the theme is pretty clear. Um, they see this book as a survival guide, a way to, to fight racism and actually mm -hmm. keep the job and the career that they've built. So this is appealing to those currently dealing with racial discrimination on just a huge level. But, you know, interestingly enough, Dr. Pat, I am being contacted by employers. Yeah. And this book is also appealing to employers because I'll tell you what happened. Um, I think the, the rose-colored glasses were taken off for a lot of organizations who really want to do the right thing, who, who want to make sure that their employees are getting an equal opportunity and that there is not uh, racism in their organizations, but they're realistic and they know 
that there are issues because employees keep coming forward saying that they're being discriminated against, um, you know, saying that they're being treated differently than other employees. And so employers are reaching out to me and they're asking me how they can use hush money to improve the environment and to make sure that if there is racism going on, because Dr. Pat, I, I don't know if you um, have heard anyone tell you this, but today's racism, modern day racism is, is not like it was decades ago. Not at all. Um, it, not at all. Um, if you look at modern day books, um, television shows and movies, most of them always focus on racism that occurred decades ago during a time where it was more overt. You know, it was easily spotted. Today's racism in the workplace is more covert. It's hidden and it is much harder to prove. And so employers know that there's a chance that there are some racist behaviors and some racist acts going on in their organizations, but they want to be able to identify it. And that's where I tell them, you know, um, diversity trainings, as you know, Dr. Pat, with your HR background, yeah. uh, diversity, diversity trainings have been around for decades, right? And, you know, sometimes they're done annually. Sometimes they're done semi-annually. Sometimes they last an hour, maybe four hours, and they're usually mandatory for all staff. And at the end of those trainings, everyone on staff checks the box, promising to treat everybody equally, uh, promising not to discriminate, uh, promising not to act or behave in racist ways. And then after they check that box, meeting that annual or semi-annual requirement, they go back to their routines and back to their jobs and the racism continues. And so what I tell employers when they reach out to me is diversity trainings themselves are not going to un unteach someone who has been taught to behave in racist ways. It's just not going to happen in a, a once a year training. But what you can do to prevent and reduce racism in your workplace is add hush money how one woman proved systemic racism in her workplace and kept her job it to that diversity training and show your leaders and your managers the unconventional methods. And when I say unconventional, I mean unconventional. Unconventional methods that this woman, Ebony, used to prove the existence of racism, turn the tables on that organization and keep her job. And if you show this to your managers and your leaders and you let them know that this book is spreading like wildfire through black and brown communities and your employees are reading this and they're adopting these unconventional methods this woman used, if you are exhibiting racist behavior, if you are discriminating against someone on staff, you may very well find yourself the victim of an employee who's read this book and is using these strategies against you, unbeknownst to you, until it's too late and your job is at risk. Yeah. I mean, what you've done is you've brought something to the forefront that organizations can dig their teeth into. And what I mean by that is, I can't remember the last, no, I can't. I'm part of an old school group of people. They don't do this anymore. 
they don't do what used to be known as sensitivity training. So I'm part of a group of people that not only experienced sensitivity training back in the 70s, but was changed by it. You know, people like Harvey that stepped in and did a level of sensitivity training that you could not walk away from. And we were forever changed. It was grueling, Jackie. I mean, for a lot of people, it was grueling. But you left there after 10 days, 7 to 10 days, right? And you understood what was inside of you that now we're looking at in the way you described as a different version of racism. I want to ask you this question. This book reveals the changing landscape of racism and how smart people have gotten to sidetrack and create a whole new form of passive aggressive racism. That's my term. What do you think? Oh, I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree. And, and it's because of that, that in a lot of cases, many of our black and brown people, you know, when they, when they work, and, and it doesn't matter, Dr. Pat, what job you have. That's mm -hmm. the interesting thing. No. You could be the lowest job on the totem pole, or you could be the CEO of a company, and you are going to be um, targeted the same way. If someone determines that because of the color of your skin, you do not deserve to be in that position. And so what a lot of people have been doing because of the way that um, racism has morphed into this, this more, you know, covert, this more hidden way of attacking people um, where they hurt, um, what they do is they actually find themselves facing three impossible choices. And a lot of people usually take one of those choices. Um, they either suffer in silence um, because they need that job. They, they've got to keep it. Um, if you are a person of color and you have a, a great job and you, you have bills and you have a family and you know that no matter where you go, you're going to face racism, some people believe it's just better to suffer in silence and stay here because there's no safe place. Does that make sense? It does make sense to me. And, you know, I, I am, first of all, I want to congratulate you and your daughters. I just want to congratulate you for taking something that is so in the world. I'm going to say in the world. We, we like to talk about the United States, but let's just be real. It's like in the world. Taking something, world. presenting it in a story format, but more importantly, giving us insights in every chapter, every chapter, you know, guiding us through the power of an email, having us look at whether or not hate is in the workplace. She hates me. She hates me not. Um, and this is a short interview, but I could d definitely go on about it. What you're doing to uncover something that by any other term is a form of passive aggressive racism. And I say that because I know what that term means. But this is the thing that we have to absolutely make people aware of. Now, Jackie, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. But I'm an optimist. I own a positive talk radio network. So some people say I'm naive. I've been naive all my life. I want to give people the benefit of the doubt that they don't really understand 
the impact of leaving a headline of the George Floyd trial on a co-worker's desk with no note. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt that they don't really understand what the impact of that is. I it's want to, so sad. <laughs> that's a real thing I just showed, I talked about. That's like a, that's real. I didn't make that up. That's like something that actually happened to one of my, my clients. I want to ask you this last question. Where do you go from here? What's your vision? And congratulations that. Thank you. So much. Yeah. Where do you go from here? Help us. Help us go from where we are now to where we need to get. And how do we get a copy of the book? So, you know, there, there's there's something that I, my hope and that my daughter's hope is in writing this book. You know, we we suffered a, a lot of racial trauma, Dr. Pat. Mm. I'll be honest with you. I have, I am still trying to cover, recover from, mm. from my own trauma. When, when you go through um, diversity trainings in your organizations, they don't teach you about the, the human aspect of racism. You know, they focus on what's occurring in the company. They, they, they come up with these um, scenarios in their trainings, and they only focus on a very small snippet of what happens to an employee who is experiencing racism while they're at work. They never touch base on the, the full picture, how racism affects that person not only while they're at work, but when they leave work. And there is a, a lot of racial trauma that occurs on um, an emotional, a psychological, and a, a physical level. Yeah. And so, you know, like uh, in Ebony's case, for example, the trauma that she experienced was so severe she she wanted to kill herself. Yeah. She went from wanting to kill herself to plotting how she could kill her boss. And that's a very real uh, impact of racial trauma that a lot of people experience. But there's so much more. And so my hope is that people will read Hush Money and they will they will step into the shoes of a racial discrimination victim to see and feel the full impact of racism in a real and modern way, because this is occurring and hurting our people right now. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And for me, you know, the last time my career was derailed, you know, I, I sank so low, Dr. Pat. Mm. I am still trying to recover. Yeah. But I found myself on the edge of the, the ocean at Salt Creek Beach, contemplating just killing myself because it's very difficult when you think that you live in a world where you are not accepted and where you cannot thrive and where you are treated as subhuman. And so I hope that people will read this, step into the shoes, and walk away with a deeper understanding of what life is like in the workplace 
for our black and brown people and hopefully take that knowledge and insight and work with us to create positive change. You know, I am 100% with you on this and support you. It is very difficult to understand the everyday, relentless, 24 hours a day, every day of a person, a black or brown person's life, every day, every minute of every day. It's walking on eggshells. It's never being enough. It's stepping out into the world and not knowing what might happen to you every day, 24 seven. And to, and to tell you, Jackie, this, your book opens up a door. But I hope that we recognize that the mental, psychological, and physical duress of this is decades and decades. And you know, let me just say this other thing. I made a statement a couple of months ago. And boy, I'll tell you, people were just like, oh, you didn't really mean it. Here's what I said. We've got this new term called microaggressions, right? You know that term? Yes. It is such a, it's such a misleading term. And I, I asked myself, why, why is anything of this nature led by the word micro? Now, people say, oh, but Pat, it's at the personal. I said, but wait a minute. Why don't we just call this what it is? Exactly. Why, why don't we stop and with the fancy darn term and let's just say, oh, wait a minute, psychological abuse. Okay, that's more like it. Because it's easier, Dr. Pat, to pretend that something does not exist than to acknowledge that mm. it does. And so instead of just calling it what it is, we have to come up with, with ways to discount what people are experiencing. So you're taking a giant step, a brilliant step, a courageous step, and there is much more for you to do on this. There's much more yes. that people need to learn from you. And I want well, to congratulate you. you. Well, thank you. And if I might just say, yeah. um, there is a part two to Ebony's story. Mm -hmm. um, it will be released on September 1st. Because although she was able to prove systemic racism in her workplace and keep her job, her issues with racism in this company did not end there. And so book two, which comes out on September 1st, picks up literally where book one left off. Um, and I also want to let your audience know that um, right now, Hush Money, uh, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job, is on sale for $6. I mean, mm -hmm. that's about what you pay nowadays for a cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> it's on Amazon for $6 in paperback and Kindle. Um, it will be one of the best $6 you ever spend if you really want to get a deeper understanding of what life in the workplace is like for our people of color. And uh, if you are someone like my sister who wants to have the book read to you, the audio book also available on Amazon is absolutely spectacular and does a wonderful job of bringing Ebony's story to life. You know, 
you got to heal it. You got to hear it. You got to feel it. You got to be awake and aware enough to see it. And then you've got to be brave enough to do something about it. And I don't care what color your skin is. That's right, Dr. Pat. And I'll tell you what keeps me going. Um, you know, there are times as I'm writing these painful pages, you know, that it becomes overwhelming for me and for my daughters as well. You know, but my mm -hmm. daughters look at me as the head. And so if I give up, then they will give up too. And so what keeps me marching forward in, in continuing to tell our stories mm -hmm. is the fact I'm fighting racism in the workplace one book at a time because not only do racist police kill us in our communities, uh, as we saw with George Floyd and yeah. so many others, but racist managers and HR folks kill our careers in the workplace. And it really has to stop. It has to stop. Yeah. Jackie, thank you so much for everything you're doing. I look forward to the second book. Thank you and thank your family for an enormous step towards awareness, action, and freedom. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everybody, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Have you ever felt like if you just had the right tools and resources, you'd be able to carve a path toward the life your heart is aching for? Guess what? You have everything you need inside you. I'm Natasha Ornedo, and I'm here to show you that your healing is in your hands. Tune into my show, Unlock the Healing Path, every second and fourth Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. To learn more about me and my work, visit NatashaOrnedo.com. TransformationTalkRadio.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to our good news segment. Money. Whether you've heard the word money from Pink Floyd or anybody else, money. What is it about money? When you say the word, some people just light up like a firefly and other people, you would have thought that Darth Vader walked in the room. That's it. Is there any other topic, maybe a few, that polarizes us more than the money? The cha-ching. Well, Pathway to Prosperity by Mark Lazar is joining me here today. How do you take the mystery out of money? How do you look at this as its very nature, its origins, where it has come from, what it is we can all learn? And, you know, Mark and I share, Mark and I share a lot of things, you know, blue collar family, below the poverty line, firsthand struggles, you know, homelessness for me. I mean, what do we learn about money when you have a life like that? Or better yet, what do you learn about what we can share with other people to help them? Pathway to Prosperity is the conversation we're having now. This is a body of work that Mark has stepped forward and said, uh, let's talk this, let's look at it, and let's make sure everybody knows it's not for 1%. Mark, it's great to have you. Thanks, Pat. Happy to be here. So the conversation about money usually surrounds itself where we say, oh, that kind of money, that's for 1% of the population. As if we don't have choice and as if we don't have hope. So let's talk about how we rise up from, let's call it, economic disadvantaged family? What do we learn from that? But more importantly, how do we move from victim to victory around prosperity? That is a, an excellent question, Pat, is that 
Um, like you, you know, I grew up in a blue collar home, wonderful parents. Um, dad worked in a gas station, mom worked in a coffee shop, uh, part time. Um, and then what little they had became even less when they became divorced. And, um, uh, I ended up living with my father and we, uh, I grew up in a one bedroom studio, sleeping on a cot and a sleeping bag till I was about 16 years old. And, um, I wouldn't change a thing if I could, uh, it really taught me what was important in life and it gave me, I think, a unique perspective and maybe um, a great work ethic that uh, not all of my friends shared. So, um, you know, we live in a country where there is an unlimited amount of wealth that, and I, you, you had a great introduction and you're right that money can be polarizing because um, people tend to think of it as that either you're born with it uh, or you'll never have it. And that's not true in this country. And your story uh, speaks to that as well, that um, in a free market system where there's an unlimited amount of wealth and the only thing that limits wealth is a person's willingness to work, ingenuity, creativity, innovation, willingness to take risk, um, maybe some restraint or sacrifice, uh, willingness to maybe go to school or get a credential or education that gives you a little bit better um, ability to earn money throughout your lifetime and making sensible choices. And so, you know, what I discovered when I was young is that nobody talked to me about money. My parents certainly didn't understand it and they, they never discussed it with me. I never had a single class in high school and quite frankly in college that said, explained how to balance a checkbook or manage cash flows or when to use credit and when not to use credit and you know what are sensible investments and, and what should what should we be doing with our excess cash flows and um, how much is the right cash reserve to keep just just really basic things that everybody should know and um, you know, as I initially started off uh, working as a bag boy in a grocery store at a very young age and became a store manager at a, a fairly early age as well, um, had not gone to college at that point. I had a, a, a associate of arts degree from a local junior <laughs> college. Um, but I had at least a back of the napkin understanding of how money worked. And it wasn't until I changed careers and I was about 30 and went back to school and finished my undergrad and, and a master's degree in finance and um, began teaching at the university and uh, was a financial advisor, um, that people would come to me on a regular basis and ask me, where do they go to get informed about money and, and understand how money works? And I, to be frank, I didn't have a good answer. Um, that there are some books out there that I think that are, are helpful but they really don't explain, they may explain conceptually, but they don't explain the application. In other words, what is it that we should be doing on a day-to-day -day basis? So, you know, going back to your, your question earlier is that it's about empowerment. And, and so I wrote Pathway to Prosperity to empower people, to teach them not just the concepts of how money works, but how to apply it to your day-to-day -day life. And being financially successful is really, quite frankly, about doing a dozen things maybe just a little bit better. And, you know, I got to tell you, I have so many takeaways from your book. I, I want to just hit on a bunch of them, too, because, first of all, um, Pathway to Prosperity is, a, is, to me, it has so many very important things people can actually do slash change right out of the gate. That's what I, I, I love. It's a conversation that goes beyond 
the psychological or mental um, gyrations we go through about money. So number one. Number two, there's, so, there's a line in here that I love. And this is probably one of the most important messages for the newer generation that's out there now. And it's the conversation you have about credit. And I love the way you've outlined this, the pros and the cons and the credit score thing. And you know, one of the things you say is credit if properly used is your friend. The goal is to maximize wealth, not to have the highest credit score. And sometimes those two goals are mutually exclusive. And you go on to tell people why. That if you have a score of 720 and uh, 720, what would be the goal of getting 800? And so what you're sharing here is a roadmap, as you said, a pathway. Because if our time and energy is focused in one direction to the point where it takes us away from uh, wealth accumulation or wealth maximization, then aren't we just, man, spinning our wheels and we don't even know it? You know what? I had a mentor once that said, Pat, you're the best runner I know. I've never seen anybody run in place faster than you. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we don't want to do with money, right? You know, that, that's really well said. And, and you, you hit on a very important point in the book. And, and it's about, there's a, a, a the book is a series of very short chapters, typically two to three pages, and but one of them is about uh, doing good versus feeling good. And there are activities that we oftentimes do that make us feel good, but they don't do good. And, and so the book is really focused on on being practical and efficient. You know, the, the our most limited resource and most valuable resource is our time. And and how do we spend that time in the most finish the, the most efficient, practical? manner and so to your your previous point about credit score you know it may feel good to say that you have a, a credit score in the upper 700s but it, it's not accretive to your your wealth or your cash flows that credit's important you know when you're borrowing money and, and that's really it and um so when you're younger, it's important to get a credit score so that you're, you're not being charged a higher rate of interest. And if you want to purchase a home, that you can purchase right. that home and so forth. But uh, again, the, the real focus should be on activities that will improve cash flows, improve your balance sheet, and put you in a better position so that you're debt-free and that eventually that you can uh, retire and uh, ride off into the sunset, enjoy that lifestyle that you've always envisioned. You know, this is really um, a conversation about choice. And you come out of the gate and you say that. I can't remember if it's a Tony Robbins quote that you have in a book, but it's about choice. I want to ask you this question because when it comes to money or wealth, there is a, quite a few people that don't believe that they have a choice. And I mean, your book is filled with options. And what I mean by that is, Mark, when I have a book that I read that's filled with options, it screams choice. Tell us about how you drive that point home. You made a great observation. And um, one of the first lines in the book, which is probably not politically correct in today's environment, <laughs> is that I believe poverty is a choice. Mm -hmm. um, and granted, there there are people that that um, you're 
absolutely right. You mentioned this earlier that they're just they're, they weren't born with a silver spoon. They don't have wealthy parents, or they, they, they're never going to be born to money. They they might start out further behind than others financially, economically, uh, socially, and you know it's going to take um, more work and effort to, to catch up and, and do well and exceed. Uh, when you start out further behind. There's no question about that, but the, your point is absolutely salient and, and very relevant to the book is that you you do have a choice and you can control your actions and behaviors and your lifestyle. And, and that's really what the book is about, is, is it teaching people how to um, maybe change those, those behaviors and lifestyles just a little bit. Um, and, and those small changes today have a massive outcome in the future, especially due to the compounding of money. And so um, you're, you're absolutely right, is that um, the book is about making choices and, and making ideally empowering readers so that they understand money and how money works and making better choices in their day-to-day -day life and small choices, you know, whether it's, it's you know, uh, stopping off at the local coffee shop and, and getting that latte or whether it's going to the dry cleaners versus staying home and maybe ironing your shirts or uh, brown bagging your lunch versus going out to lunch every single day, or maybe buying a, a, a gently used car instead of getting that really fancy, shiny new car that, that, that would feel really good. Um, so it, that's really what it's about. And so everybody, and I believe this, that everybody can do better. Not everyone is going to be wealthy per se, but everybody can be in better financial shape. Everybody can be debt-free eventually. Everybody can have a cash reserve. Everybody can be funding their retirement accounts. And certainly this is going to be easier for somebody who, say, is in their their 20s or 30s or early 40s. You know, if you're my age, for example, or older, I'm 60, um, you know, that you don't have quite as much runway so that you, you won't have quite the same level of opportunity. But even somebody that, that's my age or older, can still make changes today that are going to have uh, make a massive difference in their life five years from now and ten years from now. Uh, uh, you know, to your point, something is better than nothing. And that's why I look at this and I say money is for everybody at every age. You're absolutely right. I mean, if you're in a position, especially uh, if you are a generation we're talking about that went through, you know, 2007, 8, 9, and 10, you already know what that experience was like. But it doesn't mean you can't restart. It doesn't mean you can't change your view of money. I want to ask you this, this question, and it's more esoteric, and I know you've got to run. When I look at Pathway to Prosperity, it is a guidebook. There's so much in here, Mark, I mean, that I could talk about. But there's something in here that I want to bring to the forefront. Aren't you also asking us to change our mindset? Absolutely, a absolutely. It's to look at money differently and that, that um, what, what's the old saying, money is the root of all evil. <laughs> um, I couldn't disagree more, is that money to me, Pat, doesn't mean having the, the biggest home or the shiniest car or designer label clothing. Money is about peace of mind. Money is about mm -hmm. not having to worry when you get that unexpected bill or expense. That And I don't know about you, but that happens to me every month. That every <laughs> month I, I have a budget, I know what my cash flows are supposed to be, and they never end up <laughs> what I had planned. And, and having that cash reserve um, takes away the worry. It takes yeah. away the concern. I, I never, I haven't worried about money in many years. And again, this is, this is from growing up poor, um, because I learned 
early on that I needed to keep a cash reserve and I and I learned that by making mistakes by you know running out of money and having to use credit or getting an extra credit card and having to charge that credit card and then and you know I'm sure that you remember as well that in the early 80s you know interest rates were significantly higher than they are today and I, I think my credit card bill was something around 24 percent interest oh. you know and it, it was miserable trying to get that paid off but when I, I got it paid off and again this was a valuable learning lesson for me I, I learned that early on and I learned that you know what I, I never want to pay interest again and I had once I paid the my credit card off and I kept the cash reserve I never had to worry about it again. I never had to worry at, at the end of each month if I was going to have enough money to pay my bills and to pay my rent uh, and so forth and so you're absolutely right. This this book is about making better choices today, not necessarily so that you can become a millionaire tomorrow. I do believe that that will happen for most, that for somebody who starts this in their 20s or 30s, that just due to the, the miracle of compound interest, if you're just funding your 401k and perhaps putting money in a Roth IRA and you keep debt free and you keep a little cash reserve, uh, I can all but guarantee you at some point when, when you're my age that your net worth will be well over a million dollars and perhaps much more than that. But the book is, isn't so much about being rich. It's about being comfortable. It's about having peace of mind that comes with knowing that your finances are in good order. Uh, I can't thank you enough for bringing the conversation to the forefront. And as a matter of fact, you know, this is a conversation for all time. But right now today, it is a conversation for people to understand the wealth potential. And thank you for giving us very clear tools, very clear guides, and making this available for everyone. Whether we're looking at exchanges or taxes or monthly sheets, budget sheets or cash flow, I think you've put it all. But then again, you are an incredible financial expert and financial planner. Thank you so much. Mark, what's your how do we get a copy of the book? How do we find out more about you? And I'd love to know your personal message. Um, you know, you can find the book on Amazon. Uh, it's Pathway to Prosperity. Um, you can also go to the website, which is pathwaytoprosperity.com. Uh, and you can read about my bio. Um, and again, my, my message is, you know, I think that my message and yours are, are perfectly aligned and that you know, this is about making good choices, right? In other words, empowering people to make decisions that, that you know, when I, I made the comment earlier that, that poverty is a choice, that um, if you don't believe that, then that means you're powerless to affect change. And so what I really want people to understand is that, that they're in charge, that they hold the reins, and, and making good decisions today will have an enormous impact on their life for the better tomorrow. Um, and I think that, that that to me is just, it's empowering. I think that it, it should lift people and elevate people that they're in control, that they're in charge. There's nothing more freeing than knowing you have the freedom to choose. But there's even nothing more freeing than that, to know that you have the freedom to choose your wealth destiny. Mark, thank you so much for everything you're doing. Thanks, Pat. It's been a pleasure. All right, everybody, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. 